Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Factor, a global medical device podcast series powered by Agilis by Kymanox. I'm your host, Denise Wagner, Senior Director of Human Factors and Usability Engineering at Agilis by Kymanox. Shannon Hosty and Edwin Bills are back for part two of our series on risk management. In part one, we chatted about the overarching risk management process for medical device development. If you haven't listened to part one, do that first, then come back to this one. Today, we continue the conversation, digging into the complexities of medical devices, including AI and other med tech. Can risk management keep up with the evolving medical tech landscape? What about complex systems? So medical technology is becoming more and more complex. Uh, In the beginning, Ed, you were saying, now we even have um, a risk management standard for AI. So, you know, really that's the way medical technology is going. It's software enabled, it's complex. Are there any plans for 14971 to speak to the complexity of medical device systems and how you break down the the risk management for the system down to the subsystems, down to the component level, and then uh, inductively carry those risks um, back up to the, the system level? We haven't up to this time uh, looked at it from that direction, but what we do require is traceability within the risk management process. So you need to uh, trace from the hazard to the uh, risk analysis, to the risk evaluation, to the implementation and effectiveness of the risk control and the residual risk. And I read an article in, um, was it the Horizons publication of of, uh, AAMI in 2015, which had a, uh, and everybody hates, I know Excel, but it had a spreadsheet that, that broke out all the uh, the different things that need to go in there, like biocompatibility, usability, uh, the electrical safety, all the things in categories. And uh, what we did is we developed a spreadsheet that had each category shown, and you brought your your items over from whatever your analysis document did. And the one thing I did that was different from there's a GHTF risk management guidance that was released in 2005 and it was based on the 2000 version of a standard. It's still pretty good today. But what I did is I broke out and said, okay, where'd the hazard come from? What document and what line item in that document can I go back to and find that information? So as I move forward, you know, I can go back and look at uh, what's the information that supported that all the way through because uh, when we release the device uh, to uh, manufacturing and we sell it, someday, probably within 20 minutes after it's put into production, somebody's going to come up with a design change to reduce cost or something. You know, So I need to be able to go back and look and see how that would uh, impact the risk of that product. And that traceability uh, function of the standard is, is how I can tie all that information together and go back. So I've got all the usability, all the electrical, all the uh, biocompatibility, all of those there and the supporting documents. In fact, one of my clients, uh, when when we first introduced that, would probably been in 
2009 or 2010, used that for a uh, notified body audit when they said, um, we want to look at your risk management system. They laid that traceability document down. The guy looked at it and said, okay, let's go to the next subject because they saw everything there was all tied together. There's documentation connected. And obviously you've done what the standard says. Perfect. So that that's an approach that worked for them. We should um, provide the links for some of those documents because some those are some of those are public documents, and we can provide the links in this at the bot- underneath this podcast. Yeah, and th- I was thinking about that, and and uh, those are great references. And what I like about that is it provides you have the top level traceability for the product, and then everything is feeding into it. It gets back to that kind of the backbone concept that I mentioned earlier. And so I can feed in my understanding around isolated items and I can feed in my understanding around software and um, and so forth. And I, I think part of the devil in the details <laughs> with that is um, the complexity of that is going to mirror the complexity of your product. So if I'm talking about surgical robotic system, it's going to be pretty complex. And that traceability is is going to have um, many references and 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 tracing and what I see as a problem with that and what I think we have a problem in risk management is I think we have a language problem. Um, a we lot do. of the terms are somewhat common language: hazard, hazard situation, harm, risk, risk. Risk is something <laughs> we use all the time, um, and all of those have very specific meanings in the standard. Probability is another one. Um, yep. That. They have very specific meaning in the standard or within the file, and it's really easy for those to get out of sync, especially when you're talking about a large system. And so what I'm calling a hazard in one document might actually be a harm in another document if you're not keeping it clean. Um, and and I think I think that's a challenge. The other challenge I have is probability. Probability without a context, a probability of what? Is, is really difficult to factor in. Mm-hmm. So if I'm looking at uh, um, a failure mode, probability of uh, this product fracturing, that's the probability of that failure mode. That's not the probability of, of then that, that failure mode becomes a hazard. I've got the probability of that hazard, and then the probability of that hazard becoming a hazardous situation and a harm. And so I, I, I see a lot when I look into complex systems that um, folks are kind of running around in circles because they they don't speak to each other well. The the documents don't speak to each other well. Have you seen that as as well? Oh, definitely. And that's that's why actually uh, the hazards of situation and, and the harm and and that whole concept, uh, the P one P two concept, was put into the guidance because uh, of those questions that were going on after the the release of the first edition. We developed that as an educational concept. The idea was not to establish a requirement that you have to do P1 and P2 because people read that and said, I have to do that. No, (laughs) that was to explain why the uh, probability of a hazard occurring is not the same as the probability of harm. They're different. And and you have to get through the hazardous situation exposure and the old shark example that we used Mm -hmm. way back in the the development of that concept um, helps to explain that. But uh, people, well, the the first place, they're not reading the guidance. They're not reading and understanding the guidance. And uh, uh, people just look at the standard. They don't even look at the definitions. And and they jump right into, uh, I got to do this stuff for the file. I got to create this 
this uh, risk analysis, put it in the file. I've, I've got to have these uh, risk controls and all this, and that has to be in the file. They're all worried about documentation and not worried about the outcome, what we're going to do here to improve the safety of the product. Yeah. And, and um, it, it gets me so frustrated because there's so much <laughs> there's so much value in creating those documents the way they're intended because mm-hmm. they should drive your design decisions yeah. and your focus yeah. and your budget and <laughs> all of your activities. It should be a driver of those, not yeah. I think that's hmm. something that um, has been a, a frustration uh, for me um, is that oftentimes engineers see the risk documentation is something you do after the fact rather than risk analysis is a design tool that you do to identify design requirements, which then feed into features. And so then, you know, doing it early and often is what is going to lead to designing out the risk, right? Um, Rather than go through the whole process and then try to I've seen it also as a laundry list of taking credit for the risk controls that you built in rather than preliminary risk analyses identifying where you need risk control, right? So it's not being used iteratively as part of the product development process often. Um, Maybe maybe I shouldn't say often, but in some instances, I, I think people see design control and risk as very separate things, not complementary. Um, so. When, in ISO 1345, they helped us, and the requirement is 7.3.3C, is that the outputs of risk management are the inputs, are the design inputs. Yes, yes. That means you have to have gone through risk analysis and done that before design input. Absolutely. And that's that traceability you, that gets really complex for complicated systems, right? Yep. And and one of the things is you can't do FMEA and meet that requirement, FMEA only. Yes. FMEA requires you have design output before you can perform it. You've got to have the design available to look at the components. If, if you didn't have the components and know what they are, you can't do FMEA. Mm-hmm. Well, it comes too late in the process, but it provides a check for you to see that you haven't missed anything by looking at the the failure mode, mm-hmm. but the uh, cost and the time that you're going to uh, have if you wait until design output before you do risk analysis, you know, your product time to market and cost is going to be much higher. So you need to be working. Um, if you're doing uh, clinicals, for instance, there's a requirement in, in the uh, 14155 that you have to have uh, risk analysis before you p- perform the uh, clinical trial. That's where we start yes. way back there, gathering information and folding it in. So some of those uh, risks that show up in your traceability summary could come from clinical trials. And there's a there was a segment I put in there for that too. But um, the idea is preliminary hazard analysis is a great tool to use because you can look at the standards For instance, if I know I'm making an electrical device, I can go to 60601 and I can pull all the hazards that are already identified there and put them in my risk analysis. And I can skip right ahead to the risk control measure. I don't need to do the estimates of probability. 
and, and severity. I could jump ahead because it's already identified a risk control measure, and then it already has identified a, a verification of effectiveness test. And if you do those according to the standard, you don't have to do anything else. You just put that in your risk management file in your, your uh, traceability summary and show where that came from, point back to 60601 uh, 8.3 or whatever it is. Yep. And uh, that's where this came from. And, and so I've, I've reduced the amount of effort that I have to do because somebody has already done that in a standard that is um, uh, one of those standards that is accepted uh, by the industry, by the FDA too. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and you can do that day one of the project. Yes. I mean, <laughs> yes. You're going to do it before make something, day one. It's going to be electrical. Okay. Now I have. <laughs> yeah, I know that. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's going to be in contact with the patient. Okay, and I'm going to be generating heat. Biocompatibility. And, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. and so, so, Shannon, when you said before you start the project, so what I like to tell people it, are these are activities, your preliminary hazard analysis that can happen before design control. This can be part yes. of yeah. your playing yes. in the sandbox, your feasibility assessment, which helps yep. you, in fact, scope your development process. Right? How much better would your project be scoped? Yeah, if you, yeah. If you do uh, preliminary hazard analysis before phase one of design control and risk management, you can scope design control and risk management in your product development process and really identify what is your time to market. So often that is not leveraged in the way that it can actually scope the entire development project. And in uh, combination products, uh, we have a Amy guidance document there, TR 105, um, that uh, talks about the fact that we've got drug risks and device risks. And then we put the drug and device together. Now we have, interaction risk mm -hmm. between, you know, what could be the chemical uh, attack on the, the syringe that's made out of plastic that might introduce a new risk. So you have to do the, the individual components, the, the constituents of the product, and put those risks in, and then the interaction risk, and put those in as well. So there's things, you know, beyond just um, the individual elements right. uh, and what happens when you combine that all together in a system. We were talking about systems earlier and uh, there's, a, there's a system safety engineering area of expertise yes. um, that has been around a while and got some uh, great, great things to include. But we have to then again look at the terminology, which is different there than it is here and, and all those things to, to try and understand, okay, what is the, the real picture for a medical device or a combination product. System safety is a, a great concept because it, it goes back and does what I said earlier. It's uh, being the patient and looking back at the device from that direction. Right. And seeing what you see as a, as a whole system. You don't see the individual parts. So uh, that that's a important concept that we we need to uh, consider when we're building our risk management system in our uh, uh, different companies. I agree. The other challenge with combination products, you have the interactions and you also have a lot of times with the device, you don't necessarily have an intended use or intended purpose until you couple it with a drug, right, for a combination product. Mm -hmm. And so now I may have one device that's used with different drugs and so, therefore, it has different indications 
intentions, purpose. Um, and so your patient perspective can change. What, what might be okay for one patient group might be problematic for another based on the device function or drug reactions. And, you know, <laughs> there's many factors there. It's challenging enough working in combination products, getting medical device systems and pharmaceutical systems to speak to each other, just quality systems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, yeah. but then to get risk management files to, um, to mesh well can be another challenge. Well, there's, there's two uh, TIRs, Amy, for combination products, because combination products in the U.S. is different from other countries in the world. Susan Needle just finished the combination products handbook, which was uh, pre-order opened last Tuesday. Um, and I happened to collaborate on the chapter on risk management there. So that was 70 pages. Uh, that's going to be a good read when people get okay, to usability. it. Because, yes, yes, <laughs> it's all in there. But uh, the idea, again, is uh, uh, trying to uh, understand the, the whole uh, area that you're working in and uh, what I need to do to meet those, uh, those requirements, looking from a, a big picture perspective and then focusing down. Uh, TIR 48 is in the uh, final review process right now. We've got... Uh, uh, a review that I need to get done uh, this month, which talks about the uh, different GMPs and how you use them for a combination product. And uh, if you're coming from the drug side and incorporating a device, you follow the drug GMPs, but also these parts of the device uh, GMP. So, uh, and and now we're having to uh, revise the, the device GMPs uh, with the the new emphasis of, of 1345 over eight, the old 820, it's still going to be numbered 820, but it's going to be a new 820. You know, we've we've got to look back and see, okay, what's changed there? But we all we already have that published, so that'll be in the next revision, I guess, uh, because uh, we're too far along, we're ahead. Like all standards development, you're always out of sync. Okay. We know the new 820 is coming probably in December, it looks like, uh, from uh, what we uh, heard in the uh, uh, session last week, is it's currently on the FDA's schedule for release in December, although that's subject to change in June. They're going to reevaluate and decide, but uh, that's coming. And then the transition period will be at least one year, but there were a lot of comments in the uh, the initial release um, that wanted two and three years. I don't know why anybody would need three years, uh, but uh, you know they're ninety-five percent the same. Eight twenty and thirteen forty-five, almost the same. So why should you take a long time to uh, anyway? So that is what I'm talking about about the out of sync thing. We're going to release the guidance document uh, on. Uh, how to do the GMPs when the GMP is going to change within a few months after that release, probably. Uh, we'll, we'll see what the comments are uh, in this current uh, round of, of reviews. Uh, maybe somebody will say, oh, we need to include the 1345 instead of 820. Or the, it'll be 820, but that's what's confusing. There's an 820-1996. Now there'll be an 820-whatever. Uh, year it is. Yeah, so one thing I'm 
you know, thinking and, and Shannon, I love your idea. We will um, tag some of the um, standards, guidance and regulations that you and Ed are pointing out in the in the podcast, along with the podcast, so people can refer to them. Uh, one thing that I think is overwhelming for manufacturers that we discussed two weeks ago in the Amy Usability Committee meeting is that there are so many of them. There's a proliferation of standards and guidance and regulations and, and how do manufacturers use these together? So one action item that came out is uh, designing an infographic of um, when do, what are all the standards, guidance, and regulations, and when do you use them? And I think the overarching, you know, design control, risk management, usability, um, we really need something that is like an information graphic that just lays it all out and, you know, what are all of these documents and how do they play together? So maybe future work, another committee. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I heard about something last week that uh, jumps way beyond that. Somebody's developing an AI application. Absolutely. You put in what the device is you're trying to develop, and it will give you all the standards. Yes, yes, I've that are applied. I've heard that. That's the that's the uh, a great application of AI. But yep. um, I think it's time to start uh, wrapping up. And um, I thank you both for just all of the wisdom and knowledge that you've you know imparted during this podcast. I, I think it's going to be excellent uh, for listeners to hear and figure out how to apply, right? Any <laughs> any closing words on, you know, if, if you were to give a manufacturer one tip on risk management, Ed, I'll let you go first and then Shannon, what would that just one tip be? Well, I, I think uh, manufacturers need to get involved in risk management and the standards committees, yes. especially. Um, uh, 14971 uh, currently is inactive, but it, uh, it's joint working group number one of IC, ISO TC210. When the vote comes up, which, you know, like I said, uh, our five-year uh, period is up for vote in December next year, December of 2024. And the inter- internationally, the ISO and IEC national committees will ask for input on should this be reaffirmed or revised. And you have to submit what you would see as the, you know, what needs to be revised and how would you revise it? And that opportunity is out there for input. Um, so as you say, what, what are you having trouble with? Write that down. And, and get it to your national uh, committees. Uh, was it 62 is the uh, uh, IEC committee, TC, or SC62. And then um, on the ISO side, it's ISO TC210. We will be evaluating those. I think we had 60 comments the last time um, that were consolidated by ISO and IEC and all the national committees, everything was pulled together into 60 categories that we uh, assessed and decided uh, uh, what we needed to do. And all of them were more guidance. Mm -hmm. Uh, We did have one requirement from ISO is that we um, 
fixed the problem that had uh, everybody looking at the 2007 edition of 14.971 as all requirements and not separating out the guidance. So that's why we moved so much into the yes. 24.971 document. Yes. And so that's separate there. That's guidance. Although uh, annexes A, B, and C in 14.971 are also guidance. The first one is the rationale for all the requirements. So if you want to know why we got that darn requirement in there, go read the rationale and it will tell you why that's there. Uh, the next one is B, which has the big uh, rat's nest uh, flow chart that shows how it's all interconnected. And that's what risk management really looks like mm -hmm. rather than that nice, neat, straight line <laughs> flow chart in figure one. You know, go to Annex B and see how it really works. And then Annex C with some basic requirements. And we talk a little bit about uh, differences between uh, hazard and hazardous situation. And it explained, gives some examples in there, some very good examples to help you clear that up. And then uh, if you go into... Uh, 24971. I know I wrote an article once on what's what's the difference between the uh, um, policy, the uh, uh, process, uh, and uh, what the acceptability criteria. All those things are not understood well. And I wrote an article that was in uh, Med Device Online, uh, probably early 2020, uh, when that came out because. We knew it was going to be a, a problematic thing, but we had a an annex in there that addressed that. Annex C addressed that. So, um, a lot of a lot of good stuff out there. If people would go look for it and read it, and then ask questions if you don't understand. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, and and I make myself open on LinkedIn and on the reps uh, forum, and I. Uh, address every question that I see that pops up related to risk management. So um, we're trying to educate and do uh, uh, forums and uh, podcasts and all kinds of things to, <laughs> right. to help out. Thank you for that. Ed. Yeah. Thank you. Shannon, <laughs> what, what is your one tip? If you had to. If you're working in a system and you don't have uh, an efficient way to, um, develop and maintain your risk management files. And what I mean by that is understanding your product risk, but understanding it from the standpoint of any every activity you do along the way to product realization should be coming back to that risk management file for you to make decisions. If you don't have an efficient way to do that, find one, figure it out. <laughs> there there are, it, it should, it's, it's scalable. That process should match the complexity of the products that you make. Figure out a way, out a way to make that efficient because it is only gonna become more and more important with um, FDA regulations, with um, IBDR, with MDR, um, it's only going to be more important that you have a clean, clear um, risk trace and, and it's essentially a design story um, behind how you're assessing that. All right, that was Shannon Hosty and Edwin Bills. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for listening or watching this episode. Please subscribe or follow this podcast and whatever app you're using right now or follow Agilis by Kymanox on LinkedIn for all updates. This episode is edited and produced by Earfluence. I'm Denise Wagner and we'll see you again on The Factor. <laughs>